Last week, we began by looking at an Advent sermon, but coming from the book of Genesis, where you see God coming to to Abram and, and saying to him, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an amazing thing it is to look upon that verse there in Genesis chapter 12 and see that the only one in whom all the families of the earth could be blessed is not Abraham, it's, it's not Isaac, it's not Jacob, it is the one that would come from them, and that is Christ the Lord. Christ born. Christ coming from the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. From them, all the families of the earth being blessed. From them, the gospel going forward so that those from, as we, as we looked at, from every tribe, every people, every tongue, coming to know Christ and being there for all eternity in heaven. We saw that those promises were given wasn't just to Abraham, but it went to Isaac and it went to Jacob as well. Promises where in Genesis 28, God says to Jacob, behold, it says, I am the Lord, your God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I'll give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of them. So that promise went to Abraham, went to Isaac, it went to Jacob. And then the book of Genesis closes up by telling us in Genesis 50, verse 24, Joseph, and you remember the story of Joseph and him being betrayed by his brothers, left for dead, sold to, to Potiphar and, and uh, thrown into prison and eventually becoming into a place of second in command of the Egyptian empire and um, being in just such an incredible place to, to be used by the Lord to be a blessing to God's people. Um, Joseph in, in chapter 50 verse 24 says to his brethren, I am dying, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's going to bring you out of this land and take you to that land that he swore, that he made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. He's going to do this. And so you imagine the people, and here it's Joseph, it's his family, it's all of their family, they're all there, and he's dying, and this is the promise that goes forward. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them a great nation and to give them the land of Canaan. But now, as we come into Exodus, 430 years have gone by. So they've been there now. 430 years. Imagine that. 
A promise given. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This is what I'm going to do. Isaac, this is what I'm going to do. God blesses Abraham with Isaac. And then you see what takes place with Jacob and Esau. And God does something just where it's not expected, but the birthright goes to to Jacob. And the promise goes to Jacob. And the covenant's made with Jacob. And here's Joseph saying, I'm dying, but God is still going to do these things. And 430 years go by. 430 years. That's, you got to figure, that's my math for a second. It's kind of sad. Um, that's 32 years longer than when the settlers came over on the Mayflower. 32 years longer than that. So, 32 years before they came over on the Mayflower, that's how much time would have gone by. It, does Mayflower seem like a long time ago to you? Yeah, it seems like a long time ago to me too. And, and if the promise were given at that particular point, at this time, they, th- th- things have been difficult for God's people. They've been in, in Egypt and life is hard. We come to the book of Exodus and we, we find in the book of Exodus an incredible picture of man's sin, a picture of man in bondage, a picture of a God of grace, a God of redemption, a God with a plan of saving His people, and a, and a God who, in fact, saves. And it's all pointing to Christ who is to come. All of it. In, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out, and, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. Verse 12 goes on and says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. God's people are there and they, the new, new king forgot Joseph. And now they're, they're in a place of, of incredible bondage and slavery. Things are getting harder and harder. But if you notice something, what's taking place is, people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. What's occurred? God's fulfilling His promises, hasn't He? In those 430 years, God has done a work in multiplying this people from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We have now a group of people that the Egyptians are saying, they are mightier than us. It's an impressive thing in which God has done. He's making a great people, a great nation, descendants as the sand of the sea. He's fulfilling his promises. But God, but as God's doing these things, Satan is doing everything he can to stop the plan of salvation. Everything. You see it in, in Exodus 1.22 where Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who's born of you shall be cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Every son shall be cast into the river. This picture there of... of just horror as these children are being taken from their their mothers and thrown into the river. 
You see a similar situation as we watch things mirror each other and pointing to Christ to come. Matthew 2.16 says, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the wise men. Children being put to death in the time of Jesus as well, these male children. And so we see a, a, a mirror that occurs, and it, it, this picture that's there pointing ahead to Christ who is to come. In Exodus chapter 2, it talks about Moses being, form, being born, and in verse 2 it says, So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the riverbanks. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark coming or among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She had compassion on him. This moment in which sisters watching and all of this is occurring, mom and faith takes the baby in and places the baby in that ark, places him in the Nile River. And as he's going down, who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. But what occurs? She had compassion on him. We see God fulfilling his promises, working his promises. They may have looked and said like, no, 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 just just let those people go by. Not Pharaoh's daughter, but that's who finds him. She could have been harsh with him. She could have said, throw him in the river. Do what my dad said. But no, she had compassion on him. The one God was calling to save his people from the Egyptians was a miraculous gift to God's people, just as Jesus was. God was the one who was going to bring salvation once and for all. Just as Moses was born to save God's people from slavery and bondage, Christ was born to be our ultimate and perfect sacrifice who would save his people from our slavery and bondage to sin and the wrath of God. You think of Romans 6, 17, where it says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves. They were in bondage there in Egypt. We are in bondage to sin. And yet, just as Moses came to deliver the people and God's doing the work, God's making this happen, God brought Jesus to free us from the bondage that we would be under for all eternity, and that's to free us from sin. And so you see these mirrors that are there between the two circumstances of Exodus looking forward to Christ who is to come. Just as Moses and God's people were in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. We see it that over and over again, there's pictures that are there.
And so in Exodus 2, verse 23, as we continue to look at the story, it happened in the process of the time that the king of Egypt died. And then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groanings. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. It's a precious section of verses there. You think of the promise that was made 400 and some years ago. The last time that God had spoken to the patriarchs. And now it says, the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage. They cried out. And their cry came up to God. He heard them. And he remembered his covenant. He remembered what he said he was going to do. God was going to continue the promises that he had made. Even though years and years had gone by, he was going to still continue the promises. Think of the next major section in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, where in verse 2 it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses says, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, now notice this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to fulfill the promise that I said. I'm going to do what I had promised. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the same one that made those promises and I'm going to do it. The covenant of Christ to come that we looked at last week in looking at the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God now appeared to Moses in a burning bush to say, I've not forgotten, and I'll keep the covenant I made. Where it says, I've come down to deliver them, in verse 8, it's the exact same meaning as the word Advent. I've come down to deliver them, Advent picture there of Jesus coming down from heaven to deliver us from slavery and bondage and to take us to the eternal promised land. And to think that God's people are in a place of just crying out to him and he hears them. He hears the cry. He's not a God that has forgotten them, although 400 and some years have gone by and they may feel that way. He's a God who's going to fulfill his promise. 
He's a God who's going to bring a Savior. Charles Spurgeon pleaded with his congregation saying this, Sinner, tell God your misery even now, and he'll hear your story. He's willing to listen, even to that sad and wretched tale of yours about your multiplied transgressions, your hardness of heart, your rejections of Christ. Tell him all, for he will hear it. Tell him what it is you want, what large mercy, what great forgiveness. Just lay your whole case before him. Do not hesitate for a single moment. He will hear it, and he will be attentive to the voice of your cry. And he will. Just as he did listening to the people of Israel there in Egypt, he will listen to you this morning. The same God that kept covenants back then is the same God that keeps covenants now. The same God that brings redemption back then frees them from bondage, frees them from slavery. Is the same God that brings redemption today that frees us from bondage to sin, slavery to sin, frees us from death. He'll hear you. In verse 13 of chapter 3, Moses says to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and, say, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The I am. The significant part of that is there we're, we're, we're watching God work to keep his promises. We're watching God not forget his people, hear their cries, tell them that he's going to redeem them. Tell them that he's going to free them. He, he sends Moses there as, as a savior to the people of Israel at that particular time. And it's pointed ahead to a, a savior who is to come. But you picture God in this bush, and the bush is consumed with fire. It's, 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 it's fire that, that's coming, but the bush is not being consumed. It's not leaving. And then God speaks from the bush saying, tell the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then we go ahead to the Gospel of John, and we picture Jesus saying to the people, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Your father Abraham was looking forward to, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He knew that Savior was coming. He knew that Messiah was coming. He, Jesus said, rejoice to see my day. And he's glad. Well, the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. I am. And so we look at that and Jesus there telling the people, God who was speaking there in that bush, that was me. When he said that, that was me. I am. They knew what he meant tells us in the next verse, then they took up stones to throw at him. They knew what he was saying. Look, as we go a little bit further, go 
a few more chapters to Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses here in Exodus 6, 1, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, I'm just going to stop here for a second because I want you to catch something as we go. Here, God saying, this is how I'm going to get the people freed from the land of Egypt. This is how we are going to redeem them. This is what is going to take place. But notice what occurs when we talk about salvation being of the Lord. When we talk about God saving us, when we talk about a Savior who is to come that is going to bring about forgiveness of sin and to place righteousness upon us to make it so that we can become his people and he is our God. It is a God who accomplishes these things. It's a God who doesn't forget even after hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a God who makes covenants and he keeps these covenants. Notice what he says here and, and, and notice how it's his doing as we go through. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groanings of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. It's, it's so emphatic when you look at it. And it's just, I am, and I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do that. We see a God who is going to save his people alive. A God who is going to bring salvation. This is what I am going to do. And then we watch God do that. We watch God bring plague after plague after plague after plague upon the Egyptians. Horrible things taking place. And yet, the Pharaoh will not let his people go. We find hardness of heart there amongst the Pharaoh, in which God hardens his heart, and it just continues and continues and continues. And the reason why is it's because it's pointing to Christ to come. There comes this place in Exodus where it tells us that God is going to kill the firstborn in every house. In every house. Final judgment that comes upon the people. The firstborn in every house in Egypt will be put to death. And so, in light of this, God says in Exodus 12, if you turn there with me, verse 3, speak, Exodus 12, 3, 
speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying this, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall, or you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the door, two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. God said, this is what I want you to do. Take a lamb. Take a lamb and make sure that it's one that's without blemish. Make sure it's a perfect one. Take this lamb. All of these judgments, everything that's taking place is pointing God's people to a place of take a lamb, kill it, take its blood, and put it on the two doorposts and put it on the lintel. This is what I'm asking you to do. Take it. Take that blood. And, and you can imagine the scene there as they go and they, they, they find a lamb. They find the lamb that has no spot, no blemish, nothing like that. They're there and they, and they, they kill the lamb and, and there, would be, there would be blood everywhere, right? They take the blood from, from the lamb and they put it there on the doorpost. And God says, when I pass over, when I see the blood... I'll pass over that particular house when I see the blood. It had to be a perfect lamb. Moses went on to say in Leviticus 22, in verse 20, he says this about the sacrifice that's to be made. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a, of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar of the Lord. It has to be perfect. It has to be the perfect lamb. It has to be the perfect sacrifice. This taking place here in this particular story of the Exodus, it's all pointing to the birth of Christ. There has to be a lamb, a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that is able to pay the price for the sins. Blood has to be shed. In Matthew one twenty three, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You picture them going and getting that lamb without spot or without blemish. And then you picture Christ coming. 
born of a virgin, so that as sin is passed with the federal headship from the father to his children, that does not take place with Christ. Not born with a sinful nature. Born free from the sinful nature. Only person in history to ever be born free from a sinful nature with the exception of Adam and Eve prior to their fall. Born without a sinful nature. Why? Coming from the Virgin Mary. Bear a son. Picture of that lamb, which was to be a male of the first year. Bore a son. But they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. There's one that is coming, which will be God with us, and he will be without sin. We find that Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, without spot to God. He is that lamb that we're looking at here in Exodus. He is that lamb, that perfect lamb, that one without blemish. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5.7 tells us, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. It gives a specific detail that when you're looking at Exodus, Christ, our Passover, He is our Passover. He was the one that was sacrificed for us. He was the one whose blood was shed. He was that lamb that was born from the Virgin Mary that was the perfect lamb without spot, without blemish, the one in whom could make it so that our sins could be removed forever. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Not only that, but the the whole process of of what God's doing and and Him saying, I want you to do this and I want you to do it at this time of the year and it's going to be blood put on the doorpost and this is the reason why you're going to do it and you're going to keep doing it It was because now hundreds and hundreds of years later, Christ would come and he would come into Jerusalem at the same time that all of these lambs would be being brought up into Jerusalem. Jesus, the one in whom John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that's going to be coming now up at the time of Passover. And he is going to partake in the Last Supper with his disciples. And he is going to go and become that sacrificial lamb at the time of Passover. Picture him there with the disciples and he's saying to them as they're eating, takes the bread and he blesses it and breaks it and he he gives the disciples and he says take eat this is my body and then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins at the same exact time when you think of 
put blood on the doorpost, and when I see the blood, I will pass over and keep doing this. Jesus saying, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. This is my blood that shed. And just as that blood was put there on the doorpost, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who was born to fulfill all that we are looking at in Exodus. All of it. I think of Revelation 13 and verse 8 where it talks about the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world refers to Christ again as that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This plan that has been there from the time the world was created, that there would come one who would be born, the perfect lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, who would fulfill all righteousness, and who would be the sacrificial lamb, our Passover, the one who would take away the sins of the world, slain from the foundation of the world. It was his plan. Revelation 1.5 says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption how? Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Did the people of Israel deserve a Passover lamb? No. I mean, if you think of the whole process of what God's people did through that, complaining, 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 God working in just incredible ways to save them, and they keep complaining and complaining and complaining. You go through the whole book of Exodus, and it's just complaint after complaint after complaint. Did you bring us here to die? Couldn't we have died back in Egypt? Where is, where is that? We have no water, and, 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 and they, they, he hits the rock, and water comes forward. And What does it tell us? That that rock was Christ. Bread coming down from heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. All of it is pointing to Christ, and yet they didn't deserve any of it. It's all grace. Imagine being told the firstborn in every household is going to die. Every single household. But this is what you need to do. And they do it. They find a lamb without spot, without blemish. They kill it. They take the blood. They put it around the door. And they're sitting there just waiting. They are up all night, right? We're told that there's cries and screams coming from every house. Because in every house in the entire land, the firstborn was killed. Shrieks and cries as they're listening. And yet, they're looking at their oldest. They're still there. They're sitting there and they're just waiting. They're listening. They're so afraid. And yet, as they get through that night, older brother's still there. 
firstborn is still there. And they're sitting there just going, he saw the blood. He saw the blood. When he passed over, he saw the blood. The wrath of God didn't come over us. He saw the blood. And God just giving us a picture there so that we could look later on and say, in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Just like for those guys sitting there in those houses, it was not because of what they had done. It was according to the riches of his grace that God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over that house. We serve a God who is a covenant keeper. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says that God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He kept his promises. He kept his promises. He did what he said he was going to do. Just as he had promised Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He didn't forget. The promise continued on. Moses came. God continued to save his people, to bring them to the promised land. But all of it was looking forward to a day when we would be here, a part of the all the families of the earth that are blessed by a God who is a covenant keeper who gave us his son, born of a virgin, the perfect lamb without spot, without blemish, whose blood was shed for us for the remission of sins to purchase us, to redeem us, to free us from our slavery to sin and bondage and the wrath of God so that we could be his people. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Christmas and Exodus, a promise that was given and one in which we celebrate passionately, worshipfully with all that is within us on this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for our salvation. What a great God we serve who has saved us and made us his own special people. Thank you for taking our sin away. Thank you for being our Passover. Thank you for shedding your blood for us. Thank you for being that perfect lamb without spot, without blemish so that there would never be a need for a sacrifice ever, ever again. By faith, your people put blood on the doorpost and upon the lintel. And you passed over those households. By faith, may we trust in your precious blood that was spilt for us for the forgiveness of sins. May we trust that there's salvation in no one other than you. You can save your people from all their sins. Whosoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. May our hope during this Christmas season 
be in that we have a Savior who was the perfect Lamb, who gave His life for us, rose again from the dead, that whoever would believe in you, trust in your blood that was spilled for their sins, for our sins, wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. We're so thankful. Those people waited 430 years for you to come and to meet them again. And then hundreds and hundreds of years went by more until Christ came. 2,000 years have nearly gone by since he died on the cross. And on this day, we still are overwhelmingly thankful for a God who is a covenant keeper, a covenant maker, a covenant keeper. We praise you for that. May every part of this Christmas be a time of us just praising you for what you've done. Precious gift of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.